Welcome to episode 87 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's February 21st, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about the links between imperialism and modern disease. Our guest today is Aro Velmuth. Aro is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California. He works on modern European history, focusing on the intersection of technological change and forms of government, claims about humanitarian development, and global modeling. He also works on gender, sexuality, and modern empires, making him quite a wide-ranging scholar. And like many of our guests, he's also interested in public outreach. He's been the editor of the Estonian Cultural Monthly and was a curator at the Estonian Museum of Freedom a few years ago. Aro published his first book, Pasteur's Empire, Bacteriology and Politics in France and its Colonies and the World, with Oxford University Press in 2020. And he's also published articles in the Journal of Global History, the Journal of the History of Ideas and French History, among others. And as you've said earlier, Merle, his work ranges across topics such as capitalism, museums, and even perceptions of opium use. So hi, Aro, and welcome to Infectious Historians. Hi, Lee. Hi, Merle. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And uh, Merle, you know, I've actually been looking forward to today's episode since it's going to pick up a thread we've followed on several occasions in the past, and maybe more specifically, the bacteriological revolution. Now, we're going to touch upon another of the big names in epidemiology, Louis Pasteur, who many of our listeners probably have at least a vague recognition of, and we'll use him and the institutions he led as a way to examine the connections between disease, medicine, politics, and empire. Although we'll be focusing on the case of France and its colonies at the turn of the 20th century, I think we've already discussed the relevance of such questions to our own reality, even today in 2022. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to frame this, Lee. And actually, I want to add in a very short point of my own personal history, which is the term pasteurization was one of the first big complicated words I learned because it was always printed on the carton of orange juice I had growing up. And that was one of the few, I guess, sweet products I was allowed to have as a kid, basically drank orange juice and water, which at the time we were told orange juice was much healthier for you than soda. And I'm not sure that's actually true anymore for the amount of sugar, but I do remember it being one of the big words I learned because I asked what it was. But I think one thing we've probably been quite implicit about on this podcast is talking about how the quote unquote politicalization of disease, science, health, medicine is not really something new during COVID, right? We heard and continue to hear people saying great phrases like, quote, follow the science, end quote, and assuming that someone somewhere put science in a gilded cage with, you know, to be nice and Star Trekianly for you force fields kind of surround that cage of science and that we know exactly what it is. But while people are saying that, they're, of course, also engaging in politics and using science to create stories to suggest outcomes that they want. So I hope today's episode spends some time unpacking the influence of politics on science and vice versa, and how this in turn shaped how people in the past acted in some ways very similar as people do today. Okay, so before we begin the the actual interview, so let's hear about what we've all been doing or all our places have been doing. So Merle, what about you? How have you been since we last recorded a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I would say not that much new is happening, but the kids went back to school and their school seems poised to lift some of the more stringent health mask regulations put in place for Omicron, which I think is good, right? You want some kind of sliding scale of adjustment to conditions as they worsen and get better. But I will say it's pretty clear that I have a lot of friends who have basically thrown in the towel post-Omicron entirely in various ways, whether that means eating at restaurants quite a lot or doing other activities that they just wouldn't have done, you know, a month or two months or three months ago. Now, as you know, Lee, I'm still at a place where vaccines for kids were moved back again. So that's quite enjoyable as we continue to sit here and wait for, you know, younger kids to have access to vaccines. But I also think we need to figure out some kind of approaches for the, you know, about 3% of the U.S. that is immunocompromised, right? And that's probably a minimum figure. That's probably too low. And I mean, what do we do? What do they do? What do we do for them? What types of 
ideas do we put in place? And I admit I don't have answers to that, but we haven't even really asked that question for the most part locally or nationally. We've, I think, just started recognizing that it's going to be a problem you know, in the last week or so in national media. Yeah, and it seems that the national news cycle has been hijacked by other issues. Yeah, that's true. You know, I'm not going to wager what's going to happen in Ukraine at this point in time, because by the time this episode comes out, hopefully there's a peaceful, calm solution. Although in retrospect, whatever I say now, people will obviously know what comes of this. It's always an interesting thing to do a podcast. But what about you, Lee? Are you back to quote unquote normal? Are you teaching? What's happening? Yeah, we're still in our winter break, but it seems almost certain that we're going back to in-person teaching in two weeks. Almost every day, every week, the government has been easing up on all kinds of COVID restrictions, even though there's still a non-trivial number of infections and deaths every day. As time moves on, again, this is like a continuing trend. You see less people masking anywhere around you. Restaurants, cafes, and the like are all open. Some are full. And what I'm thinking as I'm experiencing all of this is whether COVID is transitioning to really becoming a flu-like disease, at least in the way we perceive it and think about it. Yeah, I'm not sure you guys ever took things particularly seriously to begin with, it seems like. But, you know, hopefully people put in more stringent restrictions and something that's flu-like since this is certainly more deadly both short and long-term in its impact. Yeah, but it's become part of daily life, I guess, at this point. And what about you, Aro? How are you and where are you these days? In California, I guess? Well, yes, that's a complicated question. I've been in transit for most of the year between Los Angeles, California, and Tallinn, Estonia, because my partner, for a variety of reasons, is there for the academic year. Uh, So I've been doing the world's longest commute And it's been very interesting over the past month in particular, because here in LA, the Omicron wave has more or less crested, or the numbers of of daily infections are down quite considerably from what they were in the beginning of the year. And life is more or less back to normal. You know, restaurants are packed and schools are in person. Whereas in Estonia, the wave is, is still pretty much peaking or, you know, certainly hasn't peaked yet. And there, surprisingly, maybe everything seems also to be back to normal. People are also in restaurants and schools are also in person. And it's been very interesting to observe the kind of rhetoric around why there haven't been more stringent restrictions, which is this interesting sort of moralizing rhetoric where essentially the government is saying, well, the people who have gotten vaccinated, uh, you know, have gotten their booster shots and and are wearing masks shouldn't have to limit their lives because of, you know, 20, 30 percent of the population who have chosen not to get with the program. It reminds me of Charles Rosenberg and, and the idea of disease as a morality play, where we, we always try to attach some kind of moralistic story to this. But of course, it's not actually a morality play and, and public health is not, you know, a game of, you know, salvation and damnation. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter whether people have chosen to get vaccinated or not. If they get COVID and end up in the hospital, it's going to have consequences on all of society, uh, you know, not to mention the people who are immunocompromised, as you, Merle, very rightly noted. So it's, you know, the rhetoric's troubling um, and the situation is quite varied. And it's a, it's a very weird experience being in transit between these two places. So that's actually a really good way to frame it. I mean, we just had Keith Waylu on a few episodes ago talking about Charles Rosenberg and his ideas about disease and how they play out. Do you see a difference? You know, as you go from place to place, I mean, you just described quite similar reactions in two very different countries. I mean, are there any local differences that you've been able to perceive as well? Or is it kind of everyone's enacting the same story across the board? Hey, that's so cool. I took my history of medicine class with Keith. So that's (laughs) that's where my knowledge of Charles Rosenberg comes from. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say they're they're entirely similar. Certainly the language of sort of social obligation, I bizarrely find to be more present in in California, certainly at the kind of institutional level. You know, this is the sort of the, the left coast, allegedly. And there's a lot less of that in Estonia. 
those are the the two main distinctions, but it has been remarkably uniform, uh, this conversation. And I think that also speaks to, you know, the globalized nature of this disease. You know, even though the references to, you know, Anthony Fauci or WHO guidelines or, or things like that, you know, echo through both media spheres. Now, you mentioned that you had like the longest commute. So I guess that means that you've made that trip very often, as in once per month, I guess, maybe even more frequently? Once per month is about right. Can you maybe reflect a bit on how things changed over time? I think, as with many things in this pandemic, it's been a sort of slow process of getting used to a new normal, right? Or, or a new some kind of, of baseline where things that at first seem surprising start feeling very quotidian again. You know, the first time I did it, I certainly was, you know, pretty anxious about spending this much time on an airplane, you know, and at its best, it's a 12-hour flight. So, you know, you add a couple of hours for getting to the airport and getting out. So you're wearing a mask for, you know, 16, 17 hours, which is very hard thing to contemplate until you think about the fact that medical workers are doing this all the time, day in, day out. So at first it was sort of scary or difficult to contemplate. Then for a while, it was really comfortable because the flights were so empty. You could always sort of get a whole row to yourself. And then, you know, at a certain point at around, you know, Thanksgiving or a little bit later when the United States lifted the European travel ban, then it became just, you know, another day at the airport essentially. And I mean, I think that's how a lot of things have felt is that despite the fact that the pandemic is still ongoing, and I just read that there are more people died from the Omicron wave in the US than did from the Delta wave, but that doesn't seem to be reflected in, in people's behavior, right? People have, at least as much as I've been able to observe in public, have seemed to be more or less reverted back to normal, just with, you know, more masking. So I wonder if it might be useful to start with a few framing questions. I can think of maybe three off the top of my head that might be useful. And, you know, I'm going to ask you very big questions as we do at the beginning of every podcast that are unfair and ask you to give me, you know, what you would probably say is an entire semester length lecture course in, you know, 30 seconds or a minute, but let's see if you can do it. So first, what is the political situation in France in the last quarter of the 19th century? France, in the last quarter of the 19th century, is trying to establish a democratic republic. And uh, it's a republic that is born in the midst of war against Prussia, and it's a war that France loses in 1871. So the political situation is, is pretty tense and pretty complicated. But at the same time, it's also one in which various kinds of democratic freedoms are rapidly expanding. So, you know, universal male suffrage is established in France in 1879. In the 1880s, a lot of other uh, reforms follow. Compulsory free secular education, almost complete freedom of the press, legalization of divorce, easier citizenship rights, things like that. So this is a state that is thinking of itself as a torchbearer of the values of the French Revolution and you know, really the, the kind of democratic beacon and the beacon of modernity in a Europe that is, you know, quite complicated in terms of its political forms, right? Democracy is not a, a common institution, and it's not certainly one that people can take for granted. It's also politically very unstable. There are lots of different political parties who are vying for power. A lot of them are represented in the National Assembly. A lot of them are sort of on the outskirts, various radical groups, both on the left and the right. So it really is a regime that needs to sell itself, that needs to establish it as actually being a regime that's capable of governing and capable of winning the support of the people. Yeah, so that's a helpful setting for the domestic situation. What's happening internationally with France, right? I mean, I think they're setting up colonies around the world from what other guests have talked about. So what else are they doing? They are. And that's a real challenge 
sort of from a rhetorical standpoint. So this is this is the moment of the scramble for Africa, right? Where you know there are different ways that historians have interpreted it, but you know one common way of thinking about it is that once some countries start poking around and claiming new regions in Africa and in Southeast Asia, other countries are are getting anxious because they're fearing that they might be deprived of development opportunities, right? If you've been trading with these regions for a while and now suddenly the Belgians are saying, you know, no, like look, we're taking exclusive rights over the Congo, then you start asking, well, okay, well, are we going to be left with nothing at the end of the day? So it creates this kind of arms race or this kind of race to claim territory. Now, this is very difficult for France to accomplish because you kind of have to have some kind of answer to this question of why would a country founded on the idea that all men are born free and equal in rights be going about colonizing places and turning over their forms of rule and establishing French authority. Like, how does that make sense? How do you sort of juggle these two competing ideas? And the way the French do it is with reference to this thing called the civilizing mission, which is this idea that France really is at the pinnacle of sort of world thought and world civilization by virtue of both their revolutionary past and their current industrial strength. So what they're doing is not so much colonizing as they are offering the fruits of the French Revolution to primitive people who are incapable of ruling themselves. And they're they're sort of uplifting them to meet French standards. So this is basically the French version or the French national version, I guess, of white man's burden? Yes and no. I mean, it is in some senses, but it isn't as explicitly racialized as this idea of the white man's burden, right, which has already the word white in it. And the French really aren't explicitly drawing these kinds of distinctions where the the primitiveness of, for instance, colonial subjects in Africa is somehow rooted in race, or that race is some kind of a barrier that cannot be possibly overcome, right? At least rhetorically speaking, the French idea is that anybody irrespective of their race can adopt the values of the French Republic and then therefore become the equivalent of a French citizen. I mean, what they have trouble with are certain specific institutions and and religious creeds and and things like that. Uh, so in practice, there are a lot of distinctions made between French citizens and African or Vietnamese subjects. And those in practice end up being often drawn across racial lines. But in rhetoric, on the face of it, it's a more egalitarian idea. And does this civilizing mission, does it ever finish in success? Or is it like, basically an endless process of the non-French trying to keep up with the French. It is more or less an endless process. And uh, in practice, you see that the institutions that the French build in, in places like West Africa are often designed to keep it an endless process. And some of it is deliberate and some of it is the consequence of the French colonizing mission also being something that never requires sort of complete buy-in in France itself. So the National Assembly isn't particularly willing to fund the civilizing mission. The idea is that the colonies are supposed to pay for themselves, even though France always ends up pouring more money uh, into the colonies than it's getting out. But you know, the result of that is that the French never build up the kinds of institutions that they have built up over the course of the 19th century in, in the hexagon, for instance. So, you know, a territory as large as West Africa might have as many civil servants as a sort of mid-sized province in France itself, even though these are just, you know, incomparably larger territories. So that's a part of why this never ends up being an accomplished project. But I mean, I think, you know, these kinds of projects are never totally finished, right? The entire point of them is is for them to be unfinished. Yeah, no, I think that is a very good point, right? I mean, by their establishment, you can never quite reach the end zone, to use an American comparison for football. You just keep moving the end zone farther away or moving the goalposts, as the actual phrase goes. The third question I guess I want to talk about mostly because of my own interest in orange juice as a little kid, is this person, Louis Pasteur, who's perhaps the most famous French scientist, medical person, 
Could you maybe give our audience just a brief bio of who this guy was when he was alive and why his education and influence are a big deal? Yeah, so he really is a kind of patron saint of French science, right? If you ask the French, should be, I mean, I think uh, you go to any city, France, and you'll find a Rue Pasteur someplace or another. That's how big of a deal he is. He is a chemist by training. He's born in the town of Dole in Jura in eastern France to a, a family of tanners and works briefly at the University of Strasbourg and then moves to the University of Lille, where really his career takes a kind of turn towards microbiology. And that's actually, I think, very important that this happens in Lille because it, it shows the close connection between the science of microbiology and the development of the agricultural industry, which we sometimes sort of tend to forget. We think that science is something that happens in, in universities and, and laboratories and is this kind of, you know, pure activity untainted by the concerns of capitalism and, and politics and things like that. But, you know, this particular shift in Pasteur's trajectory essentially happens because he meets a local vintner who has been having trouble keeping his wine from getting spoiled. And he asks Pasteur help for figuring out why that happens. So he starts looking into fermentation and yeasts and then, you know, realizes that it is because of the presence of certain microorganisms that wine doesn't keep quite as well as it should. And so one of the things that this leads him to is to, you know, your favorite uh, <laughs> term, pasteurization, figuring out that if you heat up these commodities to a certain degree, it'll destroy the microorganisms without actually harming the sort of taste properties of whatever commodity you're heating up. And then the second thing that it does is it makes him think about, okay, well, if uh, microorganisms can cause disease in beer and wine, then maybe they can also cause disease in humans. And this gets him to develop the germ theory of disease, which is, you know, the kind of prevalent way we think about health and disease even today. The idea that a large number of diseases are caused by microorganisms, bacteria and viruses that enter the human body and cause damage. So, you know, COVID, for instance, and that the way to deal with them is through different kinds of therapeutic interventions, you know, whether it's uh, today often antibiotics to kill harmful bacteria, then in the day of Pasteur, different kinds of vaccines and serum. Right. So as he makes these discoveries, how do they influence France, that is public health in France? I mean, I vaguely do remember that at least some of these discoveries were controversial at the time. So does he have an immediate impact or does this take a bit longer until it kind of like snowballs into him becoming the patron saint of French medicine? Yeah. So this is a complicated question to answer. The answer depends on what you consider influence to be. If you mean influence like in the kind of media celebrity sense or in the kind of, you know, stature in the ranks of the medical mandarins of the time, then Pasteur becomes pretty famous pretty quickly. When he starts the Pasteur Institute in the late 1880s, he gets important people from all over the world, from the Russian Tsar to the Brazilian emperor to fund it. So he really has an international reputation. So he founds the Institute Pasteur named after him and raises funds for that. Yes, yes, precisely. It's a nonprofit. It's not sort of a, a state institution, so to speak. And yeah, he is that kind of a modest guy that he just calls it the Institut Pasteur. This reminds me of one of my fake academic life goals, which is to be the Eisenberg chair of history and named after you know someone else in my family and hold the chair just because I think it would be so absurd. But apparently he doesn't think this is absurd. Yeah, an entire institute. But yeah, Arrow, so getting back to the entire question of influence. So I was more thinking about influencing public health policies, practices within France. Yeah, so that's a more complicated question, because if you look at what public health in France proper, the hexagon, means in, you know, let's say the 1860s and what it means in the 1890s, then it actually looks quite similar. You know, public health means building sewage drains, aerating buildings, you know, putting in place building codes so that people are in 
congregating together in, in large numbers. You know, it means dealing with waste, those kinds of things. And uh, this is the same in, in the 1860s and the 1890s. So you could say, okay, so why does Pasteur matter? And uh, part of the answer is that even though the activities are exactly the same, the way they are explained has changed. So now you're no longer aerating buildings in order to, you know, get rid of noxious miasmas. You're aerating them to, you know, get rid of bacteria that people are, might be exhaling, for instance. And of course, in order to do a lot of these public health projects, you now need the bacteriological laboratory who can come in and take samples of wastewater, for instance, and, and see if there's any presence of cholera or test people for tuberculosis, you know, starting in the early 20th century. So in that sense, you know, things have changed and there's definitely an influence. But in other ways, these things boil down to what actually changes in the urban infrastructure is actually quite similar to this older hygienist model of doing public health. So what you're saying is it takes a while to proliferate, spread, move within France, for lack of a better term. How does this then move, whether it's via people, institutes, administration in the colonies, right? You were saying that there aren't that many administrators in the colonies. So does it take equally as long to change things or is this a different process altogether? It's pretty different. And the reason it's pretty different is that the Pastorians, even though they don't really change the, the practices of public health all that much in France, which, which has you know, quite developed urban infrastructure, they do have a promise. And that promise is vaccination and this kind of direct targeting of disease-causing microbes. It's unclear to what degree they can deliver on that promise, because by the time the Institut Pasteur is, is founded, you know, by the 1890s, the most they can show for their work is, uh, well, uh, let's see, it's, uh, it's the rabies vaccine, and then a couple of years later, the diphtheria antitoxin. But that's not a whole lot, and you know, rabies is not that common of a disease although it's terrible uh, when you get it and it really sort of makes their reputation by and large. So the situation in the colonies is different. Like in the colonies, precisely as you were saying, you have a sort of thin layer of administrators who often rotate between colonies. So you might have you know, one person work in West Africa for five years and then they get shipped off to Indochina and then maybe to you know, Tunisia or, or Madagascar or a place like that. And those administrators have very little funds to work with. So they're kind of in this position where they end up in a new location that they don't quite understand. Uh, they don't have a lot of funds and they need to solve these massive public health problems. And if you do it, you know, from a kind of social hygiene perspective, then you're really kind of out of luck because you have to learn of the local environment and the local social environment, how do people interact with each other? You know, what are their kind of daily practices of hygiene? Where do they congregate? You know, what's the class structure like? And then you have to, you know, mobilize these, these big infrastructural projects like, you know, building sewage canals and things like that. So what the Pastorians can do is, is basically say, look, you don't actually need any of this stuff. We can make this a lot easier for you. We can basically tell you what is the microbe causing the problem. And it doesn't matter if it's causing the problem in Senegal or Vietnam. It's still going to be the same microbe, and the solution to combating that microbe is also going to be essentially similar. It's going to be, you know, via vaccination or disinfection or something like that, something that's fairly targeted and can be mobilized quickly and relatively cheaply compared to these other things. So this is extremely attractive to colonial administrators, and the Pastorians have this in mind as they're starting to expand their network of laboratories into first colonial Indochina in the early 1890s, and then increasingly to North and West Africa in the early 1900s. So maybe we could zoom in a bit on the more practical details here, because I think there are several interesting questions. So first, the way I understand it, the Pasteurians are not directly funded by the government, but are somehow affiliated with France in general or French society. Yeah, I think they'd be what we would today 
called Quangos, right? What was that acronym actually mean? Something like quasi-autonomous non-governmental organizations, basically governmental organizations pretending to be non-governmental. The Pasteur Institute itself is not for profit and very consciously so. They want to have some amount of distance from both the state and from, you know, different kinds of industries that are funded through donations. The colonial institutes can't quite pull this off, although a lot of them try. So essentially, the arrangement most colonial institutes eventually come to is that they will provide services to the colonial state, for instance, a certain number of vaccinations per year, offering regular laboratory services, right, like the testing of drinking water and things like that, in exchange for a subvention that they get annually. So this sort of enables them to maintain this idea of being independent from the state whilst they're actually sort of very closely involved in, you know, both funding-wise and expertise-wise in the day-to-day running of these colonies. Because the other thing is, you know, again, there aren't that many people in the imaginations of French administrators to choose from when it comes to fulfilling different kinds of state functions. So, you know, who are they going to go to when they need somebody to run the Board of Public Health in Saigon? They go to the Pasteur Institute. So these guys also occupy oftentimes several chairs. And certainly when epidemics break out, then they're called in to kind of make policy and and try to figure out what to do in terms of epidemic response. So they have this parallel system, basically, of the institute, which I guess is a hierarchical institution as well, sending out its own people to the colonies, kind of moving them around every once in a while kind of like, again, parallel to the state itself. So could you maybe say a bit more about the size of these colonial institutes? I mean, how many people are we talking about in, let's say, on average, in an average colony? Yeah, there's no such thing as an average colony. It varies widely, right? The colonies can be, you know, fairly wealthy and well-developed, as the French would say, like, let's say Cochin China, uh, present-day South Vietnam, or they can be, you know, very sparse in terms of urban infrastructure and French presence, as in a lot of places in West Africa or Equatorial Africa. So the size and capacity of the institutes also varies widely. And it also varies in terms of, you know, how much they employ uh, local intermediaries and lab assistants. So in Vietnam, you know, there's a, a medical school in Hanoi that's founded in, I want to say, 1900. A one or 1902, there are quite a few sort of lab assistants who are Vietnamese. There are some also in the West African institutes. But on the whole, yeah, I'd say we're talking, depending on the institute, it can be as little as, you know, three or four people initially, and then sort of growing to, you know, dozens of people over time. That's sort of the general scale we're talking about. And all these people are trained and then hired in France by the main Institute Pasteur and are all French ethnically or almost entirely French ethnically? The bacteriologists are, well, not necessarily French, but European, uh, certainly. I mean, Alexandre Yarsin, one of the the kind of heroes of the colonial Pasteur Institute is not French himself, he's Swiss. But yeah, the senior scientists are all French. As I said, there could be a lot of local lab assistants and like clerical workers and people like that, but not anybody who's making policy. They aren't necessarily hired by the Institute at home. And there's actually quite a bit of tension between the agendas of the Pasteur Institute in in Paris and the institutes that are run, you know, more or less independently by their directors in places like Tunisia or West Africa. So the things that, let's say, Charles Nicole in, in Tunisia wants to research and the way he wants to research them don't necessarily align with how Emile Roux in, in Paris thinks that, that science should be done. And this becomes increasingly more tenuous as time moves on because it pertains to questions such as, you know, how do these institutes finance themselves? Is it okay to sell their services or their products at a profit? in order to finance the Institute. I guess I'm curious, you've just kind of explained the financial tensions. How do they position themselves, aside from being, you know, the only French or French trained people in the colonies, as politically important, right? They don't just 
suddenly get appointed in these positions, but there's got to be some politics, some lobbying, some marketing, some branding, whatever 21st century terms we would now use today that kind of allow them to be in the right position at the right time constantly to basically do all of this. So how do they get the political power? Are they, you know, do they have advisors? Are they lobbying? How does this all work? Yeah, there's sort of two ways to answer that. And the first has to do with this, you know, ethos of colonial masculinity that the Pastorians are very good at tapping into, which is very distinct how scientists in Paris see themselves, right? If you're someone who works in the Pasteur Institute in Paris in the 1890s, and then you kind of style yourself, you know, as basically a monk, right? Like you're existing in a monastery, you're committed to this, you know, long and arduous process of, of figuring out the microbiological world, and you want to be as, as distraction-free from the tumult of Parisian life and from your own emotions in order to get to these objective answers. If you go to the colonies, you know, nobody takes this kind of stuff seriously. You know, you go to the colonies in order to, you know, have an adventure and become a real man, right? To to regain something that has been lost in France proper. You know, you, you lost the uh, Franco-Prussian War, but you can cavort around in Africa and Indochina and feel like you're getting your military victories there. So the Pastorians, too, you know, take on this ethos of being these heroes of empire who don't just put up institutes, but who also go on expeditions into the mountains and, uh, you know, discover new lands and protect the natives, so to speak, against different kinds of dangers, whether human, animal, or, or microbial. So that's one way in which they kind of bring themselves closer to the ways that colonial administrators and businessmen see themselves. And then the other is this kind of, you know, the ability of the Pastorians to sell their project during times of crisis. So, you know, when the plague breaks out in British Hong Kong in the 1890s, and, you know, Indochinese, the French administrators of Indochina are observing, you know, how Hong Kong is locking down the port and, uh, you know, isolating people and quarantining them and burning down entire districts. And they're kind of, you know, thinking with fear, oh, like, are we going to have to do all of this in, in Saigon when the plague gets here? Then, you know, the Pastorians can basically say no we'll figure out methods of disinfection, we'll develop a vaccine, and you can all breathe a bit easier. You know, you don't have to go for these draconian and, you know, society-wide measures necessarily. And that's a very attractive proposition. I mean, I think we all know this feeling, right, from 2020, when everything was in lockdown, and you were just waiting for the vaccine to come around so that we could get out of this whole mess. That's kind of the promise that the historians are making. Now, compared to other French colonial individuals, right, administrators, adventurers, whatever, are Pasteurians somehow unique in the kind of attention they receive and, and their positive perception among the French public? Not just the French public, the colonial public too, I think. And I think that's really interesting because this uh, reputation is something that has persisted to the present day. You know, I remember going to Ho Chi Minh City to do research in the Vietnamese National Archives. And, you know, one of the interesting things you notice is that, you know, all the street names in Ho Chi Minh City are in, in Vietnamese. They were changed, although this is a, a colonial French city, right? These were changed after World War II, except for three. There's a Pasteur Street, there's a Yersin Street, and there's a Calmette Street. So that kind of, I think, tells you how successful the Pastorians have been in distancing themselves from French colonialism sort of writ large. And that is a tool that they have in their arsenal that they are using consistently. You know, in the 1920s, when there's a big outbreak of yellow fever in French West Africa, in, in Dakar, the colonial administration really kind of messes up the response and it becomes a real kind of political firestorm where African leaders are, you know, correctly accusing the French for being racist. The colonial administrators are accusing Africans for not following public health protocols. 
it's all a mess. It you know creates a lot of commotion in the National Assembly back in Paris. And then the historians are the people who are essentially called in to calm things down because they are the kind of objective observers who aren't tainted by this reputation of you know being politically motivated or being part of this this larger battle uh, between you know African political leaders and French administrators. So that kind of, again, begs the question, I mean, are these guys, I assume they're mostly guys, but people in Paris doing this as a conscious, you know, effort to basically say, like, we are the greatest things that have ever happened. And they just keep repeating this myth or reality, if you think of it that way, over and over again, until it just becomes, you know, like the discourse that all of us kind of still today keep talking about. I mean, what, what's the alternative here? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's obviously a much more complex story that you've laid out in all of these colonies, you know, in terms of what people are doing in the colonies, how this is actually working, you know, whether or not the vaccines, as you pointed out, are even effective, which in most cases they're not, yet they're still vaccinating people. So is there a more complex story that, you know, needs to be told about all these people in the colonies, I guess, is where I'm pushing toward. I mean, yes, there's a there's a more complex story. There's always a more complex story. Yeah. Underneath the kind of self aggrandizement. And it's not, you know, not always being self aggrandizing. They're sometimes like quite sensitive to to their own failures. The thing that I think is a genuine struggle, which is. You know, how do you fight these intractable epidemic diseases in a situation of, of a lot of financial and infrastructural constraint? You know, you want to imagine that, you know, it'd be great if you could just rebuild Saigon or, you know, stop the practice of the corvée or of, of essentially forced labor so that people wouldn't be exerting their immune systems and, you know, would have better nutrition and would be able to fend off tuberculosis better. But that's not really on the cards um, because the French administrators won't allow for it. And it's, it's not really anything the historians can do about it. So vaccination is the thing that is on offer that they're trying to develop. And they genuinely believe that this is going to be a solution to a lot of their problems. And they're willing to bend quite a bit of rules in order to get there. And I think that's where, you know, we need to train our attention is this question of, well, how do they respond to criticism? So take the tuberculosis vaccine, right, which is still in use today, the BCG vaccine. You know, I have a shot in my arm. I have a scar there. This is something that becomes incredibly controversial in mainland Europe, uh, largely because of this big disaster in Lubeck in the late 1920s, in which, you know, something in the order of 70 infants who are vaccinated end up dying as a consequence. And the historians are, are really troubled by this. And, and one way they respond to this is by moving a lot of their operations overseas and, and having these massive vaccination campaigns in French Indochina. They also do a set of trials in, in Algiers that, that Cliff Rosenberg has written about. But, you know, the way they're doing it, you know, for instance, in Indochina is by selling it as a proven vaccine, which it clearly is not at the time. And then using the data from there to basically bolster up their claims and say, okay, well, look like we vaccinated tens of thousands of or hundreds of thousands of people in Vietnam and, and nothing happened. You can observe similar things happening with the yellow fever vaccine when it goes to trial where Emile Hu in Paris won't allow them to conduct human trials. So they just, you know, go to Tunisia, to Charles Nicole and, and essentially ask, can you make us a better offer? Okay, so we've covered how the Pastorians were seen and, and acted within the colonies. What about the broader world, right? So and I'm thinking here about both Europe. So how are the Pastorians perceived in other European countries? I mean, we kind of mentioned Switzerland and, and the case of your sin, but maybe more broadly. And what about other colonies? That is to say, non-French colonies. Were they present in those colonies? And if not, do we hear at all about colonies who would like them to show up if it's even a thing. Yeah, they are present in other parts of the world too. There's a Pasteur Institute at, at one point in 
in British India, Pradeek Chakrabarty has written about that. There's a Pasteur Institute in Shanghai, also in places like the Ottoman Empire in, in Constantinople. There's one in Athens, Pastorian connections to Brazil, to the Osvaldo Cruz Institute. So they are really sort of transnational players. It's the, the colonial network that is the sort of the most integrated and that becomes a kind of you know vehicle or an instrument of state power, which is why I'm particularly interested in those. Uh, but their network extends more broadly than just the empire. Now, in, in terms of the international response, a lot of the beginning of the 20th century, I think, is a story of the rise of the United States in the world of biomedicine and public health. And this is something that causes considerable anxiety for French microbiologists and historians in particular, because they were used to thinking of themselves as the top dogs in the international scene, right? France is, is sort of the, the beating heart of Western medicine through much of the 19th century. So that's not really a title that they're sort of willing to give away quite easily. But the Americans, in particular, the Rockefeller Foundation, has an, a sort of international footprint that rivals the Pasteur Institute, and they are, you know, quite a bit more complex in, in terms of their methodologies and approaches. They do a lot of work on vaccination, but they do also a lot of sort of basic public health work, like, uh, you know, clearing brushes and sort of reducing places where mosquitoes can multiply in order to prevent the transmission of malaria and yellow fever, you know, mosquito nets, those kinds of things. They do a lot of uh, tuberculosis prevention in France, actually, in the last years of World War I and, and then immediately after. So there's a kind of competition for prestige between the Pasteur Institute and the Rockefeller Foundation that, for instance, is we can see really clearly when it comes to the development of the yellow fever vaccine that uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Pasteur Institute are doing more or less in parallel. The Rockefeller Foundation has an outpost in, in Lagos, in, in Nigeria. The Pasteur Institute has one in Dakar. Uh, that's where they're studying yellow fever, and they're starting to work on two different vaccine prototypes. And the French, when they run into trouble with theirs, you know, very often the argument for why they need to be pushing on with this particular vaccine candidate is that they need to get to the finish line before the Rockefeller Foundation does. Because, you know, think of the implications if... Uh, you know, you have to buy this vaccine from a rival power to distribute in your own empire. You don't want to be relying on the Americans or even worse, the British, who are also working along similar lines for something as vital as the yellow fever vaccine. So something you said piqued my interest at the end of this discussion, which is to say a lot of what you described in terms of vaccines and colonies Sounds very similar, as you said, to us waiting for vaccines for COVID, right? That even in the United States with a fairly developed public health system, we can leave the politics of that aside for the moment. We'll call it fairly developed. Obviously, it could be much better if we spent time looking at cultural implications, cultural configurations, local issues. All of this is much harder to do, takes a long amount of time, and what we really want is a easy answer. So do you think that there's, you know, kind of just a general human psychology to seek an easy answer when it comes to science that kind of develops in the time period you've worked on that is basically just carried all the way through? Or is this, you know, different things are happening at different times and it just happens to look similar? Or, of course, you could say probably a mix of both, which is always the answer in the end. But, you know, if I had to press you on one end or the other, I'm curious where you'd come down. Yeah, well, as a historian, I think you can sympathize with this. I'm a little bit resistant to answers that boil down to human nature, right? Like I'm interested in the, the historical specificity. I forget who said it, but also you can't explain a variable by a constant, right? Like there are times in, in Western history where this model of a sort of therapeutic focused biomedicine hasn't prevailed. There have been moments where public health infrastructure has been really important and has been really developed. You know, we can think of the mid 19th century as, as this one big moment for sort of social hygiene. We can think of the sort of developmentalist moment after World War II. 
as this moment where you know public health systems were really sort of built out and, and better funded. So it's not always the case. But it is, I think, you know, a function essentially of uh, structures of power that are resistant to change, right? Doing public health properly is often inconvenient to a whole lot of entrenched interests. In the case of, you know, the story of the Pastorians, you know, let's take tuberculosis, for instance. There were lots of people, Vietnamese and French, in the 1920s who were arguing that, well, Indochina should really have a similar public health program to the one that France had in the late 19th century and then after World War I, where you build sanatoria, you reduce the length of the working day, you give people vacations and opportunities to go to uh, hill stations and spa towns and, and things like that. You put in place building codes so that people live in better ventilated spaces you know, all of these would be great to reduce the spread of tuberculosis. But, you know, then you run into employers who are in Indochina precisely because you don't have an eight-hour working day. You don't have all of these requirements that you would have in, in France. You can run these things on a shoestring budget. And so for that reason, uh, you know, and French administrators who are very resistant to any idea, for instance, of uh, social associations, you know, these groups that provide support or raise funds for tuberculosis prevention, which are incredibly common in France, but in Vietnam are seen as potentially politically dangerous, because if people get together in, in these associations, you know, what else are they talking about besides public health? You know, they might be talking about nationalist or communist ideas. And we can't have that, right? So, you know, it's it's those moments of sort of entrenched power where I think these uh, Pastorian ideas that are focusing on these almost magic bullet-like solutions that do away with the problem, but keep the, the social organization essentially intact or maintain the status quo become so, so appealing. So I think with that answer, which moves us into the present, that's a good place to wrap up the episode. So I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Carl. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks again for coming on. Right. So I think that interview delivered on what I hoped it would, which is to say these parallels between the past a hundred years ago or so and our present today. One of the parallels I would say is that we could look at the Pasturians really as a success story. And one of the questions of the problems that we've raised on multiple occasions on this podcast in the past, right? We spoke about how historians are supposed to win or get a seat at the table. It is not easy to do, I think, as we've been experiencing before and during COVID. But I think the Presturians were able to do that and were able to do that also within a relatively decentralized system of both France and its colonies. Yeah, I think this is why I pressed him a number of times on you know, how they did this, right? What were the politics? What were the marketing? What are the branding to use dirty words for academics, I suppose. But I do think that there is a message there, right? That clearly starting with one guy and then obviously becoming a lot bigger, all these people became the go-to people whenever there were problems, questions, or issues in any of these colonies across the world. And so how this was done, how they became you know, the first person you pick up the phone and call, to use an idea that probably doesn't work at the time as much, but how you become the go-to person, as you said, how you get a seat at the table. So, you know, one way to think about this is to think about contemporary comparisons, right? So is there, let's say, an academic who has a strong enough, broad enough name recognition who can pull something like this off to develop as his own, his or her own institute whatever, and through that, start influencing others worldwide. Well, do you have someone in mind? 
Yeah. So, I mean, think about, let's say, Jared Diamond, for example, right? Who has drawn a lot of attention. And that's one example. I mean, obviously, there are other examples as well. Sure. What I would say is that someone like that, like Jared Diamond, whose works you and I probably don't really like, but who is certainly very popular among non-academics and non-specialists, what you would need to have is a way to hook that into politics and into the government and into broader administrative spheres, right? So, I mean, one thing, you know, we only did a very brief bio of Louis Pasteur, but what made Louis Pasteur able to do this is he was hanging out with before it was the Third Republic and Napoleon III was running the Second Empire. He's hanging out with the emperor, right? And getting money and funding from him. I should say, Lee, I'm currently reading a biography of Pasteur. So that's why I really appreciate this episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously that helps, right? But his access to the emperor, I guess, was because he already did some important work earlier on, right? Yeah, of course. But the two, as we've long said, have to go hand in hand, right? You have to have the work to turn into a public marketing campaign, which is certainly what Pastor did, even if he wouldn't have used those terms, I'm sure. And then that in itself builds on it, right? So he gets more work to do different types of stuff of which he's originally not qualified, right? So he does all this stuff with silkworms, right? He gets called in for that, for example, even though he's never worked with silkworms. And then he gets called in for other things, even though he's never necessarily worked with all of these things. And so it's a way in which you build yourself by doing good work, but at the same time, making yourself into the face of the product itself. Yeah. And again, that's the same interplay that we're considering, experiencing, hearing about today, research, academic research and outreach or marketing, if PR, if you want to see it that way. Yeah. I mean, the only comparative person who's not an academic and not a scientist that I could think of was Bill Gates here when it comes to the Gates Foundation. And I think it was Thomas Zimmer who, you know, in one of our first handful of episodes, who told us, and I didn't know this, right, that the WHO budget is significantly made up of Gates Foundation money. And so, yes, technically it's a non-governmental institution and the WHO is an international organization, but if your money is made up of basically one guy's and a board that probably will rubber stamp whatever he does, I'm sure, and his ideas and his priorities, that's going to shape how public health across the world is actually going to function. Yeah, although that's a bit different though, right? Because he's bringing in the funding rather than, and again, I guess some name recognition, but definitely not the academic side or, or the science side. I mean, he's buying in a sense or funding those yeah, I mean, the obvious parallel with the Gates Foundation is what came up in this episode, which is the Rockefeller Foundation. And we didn't press him on who they are, but I don't know anyone who's running the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm sure they're very famous scientists, but it's named the Rockefeller Foundation, named after, I presume, you know, the famous oil tycoon who's a Rockefeller or one of his descendants trying to launder his, you know, ill-gotten gains, as <laughs> often happens with other famous tycoons of that period. But that's the same kind of thing, I would say. Yeah. The other thing I thought, you know, I pressed him a bit about, which was kind of the Pastorian seeing science as a quote unquote silver bullet solution, right? So you don't have to deal with, as I asked, cultural complexities, local issues, right? That science, this vaccine will save us. And, you know, I asked him if anything had changed and he pointed out yes and pointed out to structures of power, which I'll say is true. But then structures of power are always the thing that always exists, right? Who's in power and how they structure it changes. But that's kind of a human constant, isn't it? Right. What struck me is the similarity between the perception of science, right, back then and, and today, as you mentioned. And I think that for administrators back then, colonial administrators who were supposed to use, maybe even fund the Pasturians in their colony. As far as I understand back then and today, decision makers are short on funds, right? They're, they're trying to run complex, very complex systems sometimes with very little funds. 
And science keeps dangling this like idea that, oh, you can solve these massive problems with a relatively minor investment, which sometimes pays off, right? Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does in curing this disease, for example, or getting that vaccine. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And obviously, as I said, that's part of what's going on during COVID, right? And part of the struggle for people, certainly when it came to the Omicron wave, Delta, you know, we can have a debate over unvaccinated or vaccinated people. And that, you know, was how it was framed. But Omicron was pretty clear that, yeah, even if you're vaccinated and boosted, you can still get Omicron. And that's just how it's going to be to some extent. And so this promised silver bullet becomes not really a silver bullet or an imperfect one, perhaps. And thus, you're actually left at the answer, quote unquote, to all of COVID and most disease, I would say, in history, which is much more complicated cultural, local outcomes. And that's just much more difficult to deal with, right? Because everyone's situation, as I kind of said at the beginning of the episode, is somewhat unique, right? There's buckets of people who are, for example, immunocompromised, or there's buckets of people who have children under five. But those situations are, of course, different from each other. And so you're really left with a much more complex outcome process of how to deal with the disease. Right. Then if we want to look at the parallels again, so the silver bullet, I mean, identifying science as a silver bullet, both during COVID and also in colonial France, to, to use this episode as an example, has pushed decision makers, politicians to go for these cheap solutions, which, I mean, again, they might not work as intended, right? Think about the beginning of COVID, right? It was seen much easier to just throw money at vaccines and solve the problem that way than really educating the public or trying to get support or develop some kind of cohesive solution within most Western societies, at least. And that, in a sense, I guess, is what we've been hearing about in this episode about colonial France 150 years ago or so. Yeah, that's why I think that there are some things that are similar across time. Obviously, they're different in terms of people living through them. But it is interesting to touch upon these parallels and how they're quite similar to each other. So with that similarities bringing us to the presently, do you have any planned trips or vacations coming up? I mean, are you able to leave Israel? I mean, what's happening these days? Are you just allowed to go wherever you want now? <laughs> well, I haven't left Israel, which is not a large country for over two years now. Yeah, two and a half years now. Yes, we can leave. I mean, we could almost always leave. Leaving was not that big of an issue most of the time. The question was whether you'd be able to come back. And that was also usually doable, let's say. Yeah, but no, now flights are back. People are ordering flights for the holiday season here or like part of the holiday season, which is in April, so Passover. And so that's definitely a big thing. I am currently not planning on that kind of vacation. I'm thinking more local, more local, more limited, two, three days vacation, which is what I'm hoping to have if everything works in about a week. I'm not sure exactly when and where, but that is currently the plan. When and where seem to be the two key things about a vacation. But what do I know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so it's definitely going to be next Sunday and Monday. And the question is whether it'll start earlier or not. And the reason why it might not is because some bad weather happening at exactly the same time. What does bad weather in Israel mean? <laughs> Definitely not bad weather than in East Coast the United States. It's just colder temperatures and rain, as in, let's say, 60 degrees Fahrenheit or so, 50, 60 degrees Fahrenheit and rain, which just makes things much less pleasant here. Now, again, you have to keep in mind that insulation is definitely worse here, and you're just not used to those kind of trips, which were much easier to do, as I recall, in the United States while I lived there. You've grown weather soft now that you've been in Israel for too long. Like. 
I mean, in one sense, yes. Yeah, in one sense, I have. But what about you? Are you planning anything on your side? Any road trips with the kids to visit family? Yeah, nothing upcoming. My parents are going to come down actually for a few days in a couple of weeks to see us and the kids for about four or five days. And this is a very momentous four or five days because this was the four or five days my parents were actually supposed to come down and see the kids in March of 2020 in the weekend in which everything was shut down. So it's kind of almost now like a infamous, famous event because I think it was the first weekend of the shutdown in the end. Have they visited? They have visited, right? No, they haven't been back to Annapolis since then. Yeah. Okay. So I hope they have a good time. But you guys are not planning on any trips to like West Virginia or so? No, no, we're not going anywhere because we obviously have a big move coming up. I have a couple of conferences I'll be attending. So that will be exciting moving forward. And I think we'll talk about that on the next episode. Like, Yeah, probably. Okay, so I guess that on this point, we could wrap up this episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and Penn State University for funding the Infectious Historians and the great team that works behind the scenes, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Veridra Kanat. Until next time, stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and enjoy a vacation if you can as well in a healthy way.